Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Brian Lowe about his recent book, Ritualized Writing, Buddhist Practice in Scriptural Cultures in Ancient Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2017. This book examines 8th century Japanese practices that ritualized writing, or in other words, conceptually and practically set sutra transcription apart from other forms of writing. Drawing on a rich trove of 8th century documents that describe everything from donation sums and sources, to the types of paper used, to the purification rites practiced prior to transcription, to records of which scribes had borrowed or returned their brushes, Lowe provides us not only with an expert analysis of the religious meaning of various aspects of suture copying, but also with a detailed description of the fascinating ritual and material culture of public and private scriptoria, and intimate glimpses into the lives of the patrons and laborers of these institutions. More broadly, Lowe's book asks us to rethink our assumptions about ritual. For in the case studies found within, we see ritual used not simply symbolically, as a representation of a pre-extant cultural or political system, but rather as a social and ethical practice that generates new communal identities and offers opportunities for individual cultivation. Ritual, Lowe shows, is not just a result, but also a cause. In the first part of the book, Lowe looks at the ritualization of writing. Here we learn of the way in which sutra copying and purification rites executed prior to copying are simultaneously ethical, soteriological, and ritually efficacious. That is, copying a sutra in the ritually correct and pure way was conceived as morally upright, but also as an act that would bring about the ritual's intended results and by which one would make soteriological progress. In this part of the book, Lo also introduces a type of prayer text called a ganmon, and shows how these texts drew on Buddhist and non-Buddhist language to create a uniquely East Asian genre that was unquestionably Buddhist, even as it incorporated norms and imagery from non-Buddhist sources. In the second part of the book, we learn about the ways in which ritualized writing was produced by certain forms of social and institutional organization, but also about the ways in which this practice in turn affected those forms of organization. Lowe discusses grassroots fellowships of pious friends that were formed for the purpose of commissioning sutra transcriptions, and also examines private and public scriptoria, which were highly bureaucratic. A key theme in this part of the book, and indeed throughout this work, is that taking a closer look at the networks of people and institutions involved in the production of ritualized writing calls into question the stark divisions between state, aristocratic, clan, and popular Buddhism, divisions that are often assumed in research on this period. Many of the fellowships at Lowe examined, for instance, were created by individuals who had strong ties to the state and to certain clans, but whose intentions, while in part political and aimed at forming new social ties between groups, were also deeply personal, pious, and religious. In the third part of the book, Lowe provides us with two carefully crafted micro-histories. First, we read about the career of a scriptorium worker who served as a scribe, proofreader, and administrator, and find that rather than simply being a cog in a sutra-copying bureaucracy, through his work this individual developed his own religious, literary, and calligraphic sensibilities, which enabled him to eventually embark upon a monastic. Second, we learned of an imperially commissioned sutra transcription project from 748. On the face of it, this project appears to be concerned first and foremost with protection of imperial family members. However, by paying close attention to the details of the process, particularly the contents of the sutras copied and the dates on which certain stages of the project were begun or executed, Lowe shows that this project was just as motiv- motivated by fear of divine punishment and attacks by sorcerers 
threats considered quite real in the eyes of the court. Here, then, we have an instance in which those at the pinnacle of state power used ritual, here ritualized writing, not as a means of displaying power, but rather as a way to repent. And they did so specifically on those days when they believed the Buddhist four heavenly kings would be observing their conduct most closely. One of the book's many strengths is its use of non-Japanese examples to show the way in which the nitty-gritty of 8th century Japanese Buddhist ritualized writing exhibits a great number of similarities with examples found in Korea, China, Central Asia, and India. Indeed, Lo has gone out of his way to situate his object of study within the larger worlds of Buddhist manuscript cultures and Buddhist ritual. A delightful read for the Japan specialists, it is also accessible to those with no knowledge of Japan. Besides being indispensable for those studying pre-modern Japanese Buddhism and religion, Lo's book will be particularly rewarding for anyone interested in religious ritual in general, the use of Buddhist ritual by the state, the influence of calendrics on Buddhism, ideas about purity and pollution, Buddhist writing practices, and debates about semantic versus performative uses of texts. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with Brian Lowe, who is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies and the Religious Traditions of Japan and Korea in the Department of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University. We're going to be talking about his recent book, Ritualized Writing, Buddhist Practice and Scriptural Cultures in Ancient Japan, which was published earlier this year, 2017, by the University of Hawaii Press in conjunction with the Kuroda Institute. Hello, Brian, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Luke. It's great to be here. So I want to begin, as uh, I always do, by asking how you came to the study of religion, uh, study of Buddhism, and study of Japan. So yeah, those are three somewhat different but also interconnected origin stories, and they all kind of date to my childhood and high school, so we'll have to kind of go back in time. But I'll try to have three really brief anecdotes um, that answer all of those. So first, like the study of religion. I grew up in a household, my mom's of Jewish heritage but is non-practicing, and my dad's like kind of, I always say a devout atheist. Um, he's, he's kind of passionate about his atheism. And so I always joke that I have this kind of Oedipal impulse to, uh, to kill my father and study religion. But <laughs> I, I got to high school and they had this religion requirement that I had to take. It wasn't a religious um, high school, but they did have a religion requirement. And I was dreading it. I said, you know, why are they making me study this garbage? What would I possibly learn from studying religion? And I loved literature and English when I was in high school. And there was this class that fulfilled the religion requirement called Buddhism, not Buddhism, sorry, not Buddhism. Um, it was called the Bible and literature. Hmm. And it treated the Bible as literature. You kind of read the Bible from a literary perspective. And I, I took that class because I like literature. And what I found is I actually loved studying religious texts um, from a literary perspective. When I got into college, I had originally intended to be an English major, creative writing major. And what I found is kind of reading literature was almost too sacred for me, but reading religious texts, I felt like I could kind of approach with proper academic um, criticism and engage analytically in a way that was really fascinating, interesting to me. So that's how I came to study religion. Um, Buddhism, again, kind of going back to high school, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a beat. I loved Mm. Jack Kerouac, um, Gary Snyder. Those were kind of my heroes. And Around that time when I was reading these figures who were very influenced by Buddhism, Robert Thurman, a famed professor of Tibetan Buddhism at Columbia University, came to my high school. He was an Hmm. alum of my high school, and he came and he gave a talk. And for all of the criticisms, uh, many justly so, of of Robert Thurman's scholarship, 
for a 16 year old kind of sitting in a chair, listening to him speak to me, he sounded like master Yoda. And yeah. I was, I was blown away and I, I worked for the school newspaper. So I got the job to interview him, um, which was fascinating. And I was just kind of in love and really passionate and interested in Buddhism. Yeah. And finally, Japan, I think like a lot of kids in my um, generation, I studied martial arts in part because I saw the movie Karate Kid. And I had this really, really wonderful teacher of traditional Okinawan martial arts named Buzz Durkin. And it was a really big part of my life when I was growing up. One of the things we did is we learned little bits of Japanese in the classroom. We, could, we would count to 10 while we would you know, do our moves. We learned how to say things like front kick. And I got to high school again and, and they offered Japanese. And I said, you know, I can say front kick. I can count to 10. Like I pretty much have this Japanese thing down. It can't be that hard. I should study Japanese. And as you know, Luke, studying Japanese is actually incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, it's, there's a lot more to it than front kick and counting to 10. I, I, and I struggled. So when I, but I was kind of stubborn, so I didn't give up. And when I went back to a high school reunion a few years ago, I saw all of my old Japanese classmates and none of them are doing anything related to Japan anymore. And all of them said to me, said, they said, of all the people in our class, I can't believe you're the one that stuck with it. Cause I was, I was terrible at it, but I, I don't know. I was stubborn and I stuck with it. And eventually after college, I was living in Japan for a while, kind of trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I, I had these three things I liked. I liked studying religion. I was interested in Buddhism. And at that point I, I lived in Japan for a while and could speak yeah. Japanese and read Japanese. And I said, Hey, maybe I can put all these things together and turn it into a career. Here yeah. I am. That's really funny. I, I, I want to ask you how a front kick has influenced your research, but maybe I'll <laughs> save that question for after the recording. Um, so, so how did you come to focus specifically on the topic of the book we're discussing today, uh, namely ritualized forms of Buddhist writing in 8th century Japan? So it has a kind of long and convoluted narrative, uh, much like my narrative of how I got into, into the study of Japanese Buddhism to begin with. But as a senior, as an undergraduate, I was a double major in religion and in Japanese. And I wrote a senior thesis on this movement that was really um, important and influential in the, in the 90s, uh, critical Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things critical, the critical Buddhists wanted to say is that Japanese Buddhism isn't real Buddhism. And, and they were kind of very dismissive of, of Japanese Buddhism. And one of the things I got interested in as I started working on this project is actually what was being criticized. So I kind of, I found their own methodological moves about deciding kind of normative positions of what is Buddhism, what isn't, to me, not that satisfactory. But I became actually much more interested in the things that they were claiming in their normative terms were not Buddhism. Um, and as I started to learn more about the history of Buddhism in Japan, one of the periods that had always been kind of criticized and rejected is this period that I work on, um, in the book and kind of in my own specialization, the Nara period, which is pretty much the eighth century. And this period had been dismissed as a state Buddhism, a form of Buddhism that was, um, where the clergy and temples were controlled by the state where the state used Buddhism and protected it and promoted it for its own purposes, relying primarily on its kind of magical aspects rather than its, its deeper philosophy. And this is also a very normative move that's rooted in to later narratives that see authentic Buddhism emerging for the first time in the 12th and 13th centuries. And so they needed a, an enemy to fight against. And what these, enemy, what these heroes of the 12th and 13th century fought against were earlier forms of corrupt Buddhism. And the Nara period is kind of the foundation for this corruption in the standard narrative. So as I kind of read about this narrative, I was immediately distrustful of it. Surely there must be more 
to religion in, in the eighth century than this. Surely there are ways we can see it outside of this teleological narrative that wanted to privilege the position of these um, 12th, 13th century, the so-called Kamakura schools. And so I got interested in the Nara period through that. And as a way to move beyond the state Buddhism model, it felt like I had two good paths in terms of sources. One was to engage with archaeological evidence, something I'm actually starting to do now more in my, in my second book project, but that seemed too unfamiliar to me. I didn't really know how to deal with materiality, with, with things that are coming out of the ground. And the other was sutra copying. Sutra copying, as we'll probably talk about a little bit today, offers a really rich source base to see other sides of Buddhism, to see multiple perspectives of Buddhism, to see Buddhism beyond the state, and to complicate the state Buddhism model. So when I wrote the dissertation that this book came out of, what I was really trying to do was is use sutra copying as a, as a case study to overcome the state Buddhism model. Mm. Now, as I turned it into a book, one of the things I wanted to do is expand this a little bit. During my dissertation defense, I was asked by Jonathan Gold a very good question, which is, if I don't care about Japanese Buddhism, why do I care about your project? And I didn't have a good answer for that at the time, but one of the things I started to think about more is, well, what can sutra copying tell us about ritual and about scripture more generally? And these are things that perhaps people in religious studies more broadly are interested in. And that's kind of how the project has developed over the last, um, gosh, two decades, I guess, since I was an undergraduate writing a senior thesis. Yeah, well, and I should mention for listeners that you've done a really good job, and I'm not just being polite, um, in expanding it and, you know, drawing in examples from India and um, the Tibetan world and from China um, and elsewhere. So so uh, just to clarify, some listeners uh, might not be familiar with the figures and time period about which we're speaking. So let me just note that we're talking about Nara period Japan. So basically the 8th century, though you uh, write extensively also about the 7th. Now, the topic of the book um, is the reproduction of texts, which for the book we're discussing means sutra copying. Uh, but you're looking specifically at the way in which the copying of Buddhist sutras uh, was ritualized. And key here is a view on ritual that differs from uh, the view found in previous scholarship on Japanese Buddhism. Rather than treating ritual as a symbolic, uh, as primarily symbolic, or as a representation of some deeper meaning, uh, explicitly political, uh, religious, or what have you, you point to the way in which ritual affects and contributes to the transformation of individuals, groups, and institutions. So could you explain how you're approaching ritual here and, um, and perhaps how this approach differs from uh, the approach employed by previous scholars of Nara period Buddhism? Yeah, so let me first also situate it just in kind of the field of religious studies more generally. Mm. So historically, as, as many listeners of this podcast probably know, the study of ritual was largely a study of, of symbol and representation, um, particularly in kind of sociological and anthropological works, which is the, the type of religious theory that I tend to read the most. And these symbolic approaches, I think, actually work quite well for many aspects of Japanese Buddhism, especially esoteric um, Buddhism. But they didn't seem to be able to tell me all that much for, for my materials. The things they could tell me, at least to me, perhaps a more creative thinker could do, do better, but the things symbolic approaches could tell me were, were somewhat obvious. And in my view, I'm mean, just not that interesting. So there's an oft repeated claim, for example, that sutras, Buddhist scripture, um, sutras are the body of the Buddha. And sure they are, but I felt like we could, we could go beyond that. And I wanted to say, well, what, what does it matter that it's the body of the Buddha in the lives of actual people and actual communities? And when I started to ask those questions and look at it that way, I found that the people I was studying were 
far less interested in what ritual represents than what it accomplishes. And of course, there is a, represent- a relationship between the two here. But I started to follow a number of scholars in religious studies that have been influential over the last several dec- decades, Fritz Stahl, Talal Assad, Salva Mahmoud, many others, that try to shift the scholarship about thinking about ritual from a study of meaning to a study of doing. And one of the things I kind of became interested in then is how does ritual constitute individuals as kind of particular types of people, as pious or ethical individuals, and how does it constitute communities in certain ways? And one of the things I found is that by thinking about ritual this way, about its kind of constitutive power, that it would help me move beyond the state Buddhism model in ways that will probably come up more later later in our talk. But I mean, really simply, we could see how ritual in some ways could help create communities that didn't map very easily on state folk dichotomies that were commonly used to understand Japanese Buddhism. We could see ways that ritual would affect individuals in lives that were somewhat unpredictable. We would see scribes, for example, who maybe would usually be viewed as like an oppressed social class, that ritual could allow them to cultivate themselves in accord with Buddhist ethics. We would see ways that the rulers themselves were in some ways trapped by Buddhist cosmological ideas and had to perform rituals um, in order to avoid punishment from heavenly beings. And thinking about ritual this way, I think really in that way, helped me move beyond some of the very static social categories that we had of of state and folk and kind of see much more dynamic um, uses of religion and then also kind of new social categories emerging. So that was all really useful for me. The other thing I think I tried to do is thinking about the relationship between ritual and scripture. And I hope that this is something that's of interest also to people more broadly in religious studies is how do ritual acts create a category of text known as scripture? And then once that category of text known as scripture is created is set apart from other forms of writing, what are the effects of that category in the lives of people and in the formation of communities? Hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, So uh, I want to ask a question about sources now. And uh, in this book, you draw on a really incredible number of sources, but one of the most important uh, group grouping of sources is that found in the Shosoin. So, I want to ask, um, I'd like you to explain what the Shosoin is and what its importance uh, is for understanding ritualized writing. Yeah, this is a really dangerous question because it's one that I um, I can get really passionate about and talk on for a long time. And if we're at a, a party or something, it's, it's the question where my wife will start elbowing me in the ribs and saying they, they were just being polite. They didn't really care. And right. when I do get people that care, sometimes I have to like start tearing apart napkins and things to demonstrate the complexity of these sources. So I'll try to give a, a short um, answer, but yes. do, do, do play the role of, of um, elbowing me in the ribs if I go on, sure. go on too long. So the Shosuin itself um, is a term that's, that's commonly used to refer to a building that's more properly called the Shoso. This is a really, really famous building in Japan and also globally. And what the building is most famous for is a collection of imperial treasures, generally from the 8th century, including a number of objects that came to Japan from the Silk Road. So we have, you know, Persian lutes and all sorts of objects that that came quite a distance and reached Japan. And there's an exhibition of the Shosuin treasures every fall that people line up for for hours and hours to see. It's it's incredibly popular. They publish catalogs every year. It's it's kind of one of these global collections of treasures that's just important um, worldwide for Silk Road studies, um, for material culture studies, for things more generally. It's just an incredible collection of treasures. If you go to this exhibition, 
and you keep going through all of the treasures. Eventually, you get to a room that used to be relatively thinned out, although in recent years, more and more people are starting to look at these too. But in the final room of the exhibit is a collection of documents. Now, these documents were also stored in the Chosoline, but somewhat more coincidentally. They don't seem to have been treasures themselves. But we don't know how they got there exactly or why they got there, but what scholars suspect is that there were repairs happening on another building. They just kind of threw them in there for a while, and then they ended up sitting there for about a thousand years. These documents get rediscovered in the mid-19th century um, by a scholar that's really interested. He's an antiquarian, and he's really interested in collecting different seals and different types of documents. And what he does is he cuts them all apart, and he reassembles them into completely new holes. And this process continues over the next several decades, where scholars are cutting them apart and reassembling. And so what they do then is they forever disrupt what the collection was. And they're really interested in things like census records, tax records, things like that. But what it turns out, what the documents originally were, is they were about 10,000 documents connected to a single institution, a scriptorium, a Buddhist um, office for copying sutras that was active from a 50-year period, from 727 to 776. So essentially what the collection is, is a collection of 10,000 documents related to a single institution documenting the day-to-day activities of scribes, of administrators. So how much does a scribe copy today? What paper did we order today to copy a text? What did some worker who was a proofreader, why did he miss work today? We have letters where they request like time off from work and things of that nature. And so it's these really mundane day-to-day activities. I always say it's like if for people that work in an academy, it's like if someone found our file cabinets for a 50-year period, you know, 1,200 years from now. And then from that, they're trying to say, what does this tell us about religion in America? It's a somewhat backwards way to do research. And most scholars that have worked on these documents have been political and economic historians. They've been primarily interested in what these documents tell us about, you know, things like inflation, the cost of goods, um, how the, what the emperor might have been doing at a given time, things of that nature. What I use these scriptorium documents to do is what do they tell us about religion on the ground in Japan? And the other thing I want to add about these documents is that on a global level, I think they're really unique. So even famed collections like Dunhuang, for example, um, caves in Western China, which are well-known and and should be well-known, those documents too um, are really important, but they cover this huge 500-year period. And they they come from a variety of different places. What we have in the Shosuin is 50 years, a really tight place of time with incredibly rich documents covering a huge span um, of day-to-day activities, but all tied to a single institution. So for people that are interested in the history of the book, manuscript studies, kind of comparative um, archives, things of this nature, I think the Shosuin is a really unique source globally. And my book's really only scratched the surface. There's a lot more that can be done. So the first two chapters of the book focus on, in your own words, the cosmological and ethical underpinnings of transcribing scripture. And uh, in these chapters, you provide a wonderfully detailed description of the various practices that sutra transcription entailed. In the first chapter, you outline three ways in which writing was ritualized. And these three are, first, the use of the idea that transcribing sutras was both an ethically positive action and an action that advance one further down the Buddhist path. That is, it was both ethical and soteriological. Second, the purification of the body prior to transcribing scriptures. And then third, the use of dedication ceremonies performed on auspicious or religiously significant dates. And at the, when a uh, sutra transcription project was um, at at its end. 
So I want to begin with this idea of suture copying being a meritorious act. What I thought was particularly interesting in your treatment of the topic was your observation that in their writings about copying Buddhist texts, East Asian patrons of suture transcription and the actual sutra transcribers themselves, and here I quote you, drew on explicitly ethical language linked to a concept of the good, but also on language with connections to acquired excellence. So in other words, uh, suture copying was inherently good or moral, while it was also instrumental or in this case, soteriological. So could you please explain how this was so, how suture copying was both? Yeah, absolutely. And let me first say one one thing also about um, ritualization as, as a concept. So you mentioned kind of the three different ways I, I say transcribing sutras was ritualized. I didn't talk about this in my in my answer to your question on ritual, but in the book, in the title of the book, I mean, I'm, I'm clearly very obviously drawing on, on Catherine Bell's notion that r- ritualization is an act that sets certain, it's rich through ritualization, certain acts are set apart from others that are mundane. And so the idea here is that there are mundane forms of writing, like regular forms of writing. Like when I write an email, I don't, I don't do things like I don't, I don't bathe before I write the email. I don't think the email that I write is going to create any type of merit or make me an ethically better person. Um, except maybe if I, if I respond quickly, I do feel, feel good about myself. I don't hold any elaborate dedication ceremony after I write the email. And so in talking about these three things, I wanted to focus on the ways that sutra copying was set apart from other, other forms of writing. And so the first way, this notion of, of merit, for those of you that, for the listeners out there that don't have a, a background in Buddhism, really basically the idea is that good acts generate merit. And what merit is, is merit can engender rewards in this life and the next. Um, so by doing good acts, and for example, a collection of Japanese tales, the Nihon Yoiki, can tell you all these great things can happen. You can get a beautiful wife. You can receive all sorts of money. Um, all of these great things. You can be cured of an illness. All of these things can happen to you in this life. But also things can happen to you in the next life by doing good. Um, you can be born into a better birth. Also, the merit that you get, you can then bestow on others. You can give this to other people. And this becomes really important for the social aspect of the practice, that you then donate the um, merit to your parents or something like that, which itself is a meritorious act. And this is a very well-studied idea in Buddhism. One of the things I wanted to think about in, in thinking about ritual and in, in the Buddhist tradition is that the ritual both is efficacious. It engenders these good things, but the very reason that it engenders good things is that it is also ethical. And the language that they use in the Buddhist texts really emphasizes this. So the notions, for example, of kudoku, um, of merit, uses characters that in the Chinese tradition are very closely connected to notions of, of, of virtue, of ethics. And notion, um, the, the characters that they would use, for example, of Zen Go, um, good, good, good karmic acts and Zengyo, good practices. This type of language all kind of has this notion of, of the good, of doing good things. And one of the points I, I wanted to make, I don't think I use this phrase, phrasing in the book, I, I kind of wish I had, is that if you act ethically, you engender efficacy. So in the Buddhist tradition, I mean, an efficacious act in some ways, by definition, is an act that is, that is, that is moral, that is ethical. When I was first drafting the book, um, when it went to reviewers, I was reading a lot of literature on kind of Aristotelian virtue ethics. And I had that language in there a lot more strongly than it actually is in the, in the final um, version. Some of the, the readers thought it was a bit of a distraction to kind of keep talking about Aristotle in different points. I think the only time Aristotle comes up now is in the chapter on friendship, which, which we might get to later. 
But what I ended up doing is really focusing on, you know, the terms that they're using themselves. And I think in the Buddhist tradition, there is this, this strong kind of notion that ritual acts like sutra copying are decidedly um, also wholesome ones as well. Yeah. So in addition to rendering sutra transcription a meritorious act, um, transcription became ritualized through the execution of pre-transcription purification or purification practices. You note that one needed to avoid meat, alcohol, illness, death, and women prior to copying a sutra, and in addition that purification by water, either a full bath or ablutions, uh, was practiced. So, and, and, and here, when it comes to purification, you make the same interesting point that you made about uh, sutra copy more generally, which is that purification was seen as not simply something that was ritually efficacious, but was also ethical. So I was wondering if you could explain sort of how, uh, a bit about how these purification practices were actually executed. Um, and then also just mention how these were both uh, related to ritual efficacy, which I think is how we often would think about uh, purification rituals, but also to ethics. Yeah. So this is a, a thing I kind of first started exploring really early in my research. So I have a JJRR, JJRS article, Japanese Journal of Religious Studies, open access um, from 2012, that where I first started to kind of explore some of these issues about purity and ethics. Um, when I first got interested in sutra copying, I actually didn't, I have to confess, I mean, when I first got interested in, in sutra copying, I didn't know about the, the Shosoin collection very well or how rich it was as a source. And what I was first using as sources originally, um, I was using narratives. So I was using tale literature, like the Nihon Ryoiki, and I was using colophones to manuscripts. And I was kind of trying to pair these where the the literature would kind of give us the ideals and the colophones to manuscripts would give us the actual practice. And then I found the Shosuin documents were, were, were providing similar evidence of, of these purification practices that I described. Um, like you mentioned, meat avoidance, alcohol avoidance, avoidance of sex, wearing special garments, performing ablutions, things of that nature. And, um, and, and then the other thing I started to see as I, as I, worked on the book project is evidence in Dunhuang materials as well. And then something I found at the very end of my research was a really excellent colophone to a Korean manuscript that documented these practices in probably the most amount of detail I saw in any single one source. I saw this was some much broader um, practice. And the way it's framed in the documents and the colophones is usually pretty descriptive. It just says what people were doing, but it doesn't give you the why. And the why I think is found in the, in the tales. The stories give us the reasons why people are engaging in these practices. And just to give a couple of examples, we have, for example, a story of someone who upholds purity and magically the sutra copying, the, the box for the sutra, which had been too small, grows to get bigger. <laughs> and that's an example of efficacy through purity. We have an example of people that don't uphold purity, who the patrons then end up going to hell. So the patrons had hoped that the scribe would be able to copy the sutra well. Through doing so, they hoped they would achieve a, a good birth. The scribe did not uphold purity. The ritual failed and all the patrons go to hell and they're, they're angry. Great story. We have a, they, they summon him down to hell. It's, it's a wonderful story. We have a story um, where a sutra is burned in a fire and it turns out the only part of the text that actually burns is the part that was copied by a title copyist. They often had special people with really good calligraphy copy the title. It turned out the title copyist didn't uphold purity, but the person that copied the rest of the text did, which I think is really the, the best example that shows how 
if you copy with purity, it's efficacious. It becomes fireproof. If you don't, it burns. And that's, I think, the really clearest example of, of, this, of this connection to efficacy. The ethical argument is, is a bit more subtle. Um, sutras themselves do describe how through, through, pure bo- um, through pure body and mind, one can become a bodhisattva. And Kudosu, um, a scholar named Kudosu Toshio has looked at this issue of purity and connected to merit. And that was a real important um, article for me to read. This is in a volume edited by um, Nemo Seiji, where he talks about how purity is connected to um, merit. And he's not really looking at sutra copying examples as much. He's talking more generally that, and as I, as I mentioned in, in the last question, that the very notion of merit is, is ethical in my view, in that for Kudosu, and this is related to the efficacy again, that doing something impurely meant that it wasn't meritorious and doing something purely would make the act meritorious. And one story that I found related to sutra copying that I think demonstrates this really well, it's one of my favorite favorite stories, is a story about um, a scribe who's hired to, to copy a sutra, and he's there ready to copy it. And everybody, all these women had been preparing ink purely, the story tells us. And then he, it starts to rain, and they all have to huddle into this little hall. And the scribe is overcome with lust. Um, one could make a analogy, I guess, to any any number of, of Hollywood executives. <laughs> He's overcome with lust. He um, engages in forced sexual intercourse with the woman, and unlike the Hollywood ex- executives, he is instantly punished um, by karma and dies. And interestingly, and this kind of takes us afar from purity into a conversation of gender. I think the woman dies as well. Both of them die instantly, fo- foaming at the mouth. But some of the versions of the story are very explicit. They say he is punished for this sin of engaging in an impure act when he should have been copying sutras. And so this notion here of that impure action can invoke punishment of the person engaged in the act act instantly isn't really about efficacy there. It's really about this kind of much more moral issue of what types of acts are acceptable and not acceptable. And here an impure act is kind of viewed as, um, as one that can that is so sinful that it can prompt instant death. Yeah. So finally, you discuss dedication ceremonies as an important part of the transcription process. You note that dedication ceremonies provided opportunities for both sharing and creating additional merit, as you had mentioned, and that they rendered copied sutras even more meritorious and powerful. And these aspects of dedication ceremonies might be familiar to you know, listeners familiar with Buddhism elsewhere. However, two aspects of the dedication ceremony that are probably less well known are the use of the ceremony to repay debts, and particularly parental debts, uh, and the selection of particular auspicious dates. So could you please explain how dedication ceremonies serve to repay debts and how dates were chosen? Yeah, so at a dedication ceremony, various things happen. Sutras are recited. Um Prayers are read. Um, we'll probably talk about prayers, um, I imagine, um, later in this talk. But these various things happen. And the basic idea is usually a notion of this transfer of merit that I talked about before that happens at the dedication ceremonies. And the, one of the most common people that merit is dedicated to are parents. And they also often use this language of four debts, which is typically um, thought to be kind of a later post-Kukai, so post-kind of ninth century um, development or kind of really Kukai bringing in texts that, that emphasize four debts. But I find it's really common actually in our, in our period. And the four debts vary depending on list to list, but parents are always a part of, of, the, of these debts. 
And there's a really, so in the, in the manuscript evidence, we see that people are very, very interested and they sp- explicitly use this language of debt repayment over and over again in sutra colophones. When we look again at the narrative literature to kind of figure out the why, we see another really interesting story, the story that I talk about in the book of this guy named Yasu. He turns his mother into a debtor. So he starts loaning her rice and demanding repayment with interest. And his friends are all like, dude, what are you doing? You should be repaying your parental debts by copying sutras, not charging your mother debts. And at this point, the mother bears her breast to the son in this really dramatic scene. And she says, she wants to collect now on her milk debts. You know, all of the milk I gave you, like I'm calling my debts. And now eventually this guy loses all his possessions and he dies. But one of the things I think this story tells us again is that also the failure to repay debts again has karmic consequences. That if that it's an ethical obligation for us to repay our debts. And here we can see, I think, very strongly the social aspect of ritual, something I explore in a lot of the other chapters as well, that sutra copying isn't only about kind of one's individual ethical cultivation, but also that's closely tied to what type of person are we in a broader community of individuals? And how do we relate to other people? And in particular, that we have these social obligations that we need to fulfill. So that's the part um, that you talk of your question about debts. The other one is about calendrics. Um, and I have to credit Buzzy Tizer for really turning me on to this. Um, this is um, one of my teachers from, from Princeton University. And we were reading these prayer texts together, this genre known as Ganmon in Japanese, because he's interested in them as well. And I brought in a text one day that we were reading together. And he said to me, oh, you know, the date here seems kind of important because it's, you know, this is like the, the full moon. And that's a, a really common date in Dunhuang manuscripts. And he pointed me to this article by Paul Magnin which I read and showed that in Dunhuang manuscripts, we most commonly see certain dates. Um, and these accord with, with days on the ritual calendar, and they're also connected to the cycle of the moon. And so I charted and kind of did a statistical analysis of Japanese dates. And sure enough, the same most popular dates, the 15th, the 8th, the 23rd, the 1st, the 30th, 29th, 14th, all these dates that are connected to cycles of the moon on a lunar calendar were all the most common dates to dedicate sutras both in Japan and in Dunhuang. And I checked with scholars that work on Gandharan materials like Richard Solomon. He said, oh, yeah, we see this stuff in Karashi dedications um, from Gandhara as well. And so it seemed like there's something much bigger going on here. And so one, I don't have that much of a theoretical argument, except that one, we should we ignore calendrics at our peril. It's something that people in Buddhist studies, I don't think, pay enough attention to. And second, that this is also, again, connected to this notion of ethics. What happens on these days, according to Buddhist sutras, is these four heavenly kings, who I talk about um, a lot in chapter six, they're deities of, of, of both protection, but also of judgment. And they come down and observe human conduct, conduct on these days. So the audience of the dedication then is the four heavenly kings and their, and their kind of entourage. So people are trying to demonstrate to these gods that, hey, I'm doing good here. Don't punish me. And so the, the calendrics also have the strong ritual di- dimension, which, again, is, is very closely connected to, to discourse on what one could call transgression or sin and also merit. So in the second chapter, you turn to a type of prayer text called, in Japanese, a ganmon. As a genre, this is a uniquely East Asian phenomenon, and you state that while the ganmon in some sense does reflect a certain worldview, it also participates in creating a worldview, and it participates in this creation through its language and through its use in ritual. Now, on the one hand, ganmon are Buddhist texts, And yet, as you uh, very clearly show, they draw on language, imagery, and ideas from Chinese literature. So they draw on both Buddhist and non-Buddhist material. So how does this work? What determines whether Buddhist or non-Buddhist language is used within the Ganmon? 
Thank you. Let me first describe a little bit just what a ganmon is and why I argue that genre is really important. So on the most basic level, a ganmon is a, is a prayer text, quite literally. And it's a text in which one prays, usually performed at a dedication ceremony. And I should say this idea of its function, like what it does in its performative context, this is common throughout the Buddhist world. This is, this is Pan-Asian. There are a lot of overlap with other texts from outside of East Asia. But what I try to argue in this chapter is that we can't just think of ganmon as its function to perform prayer in its performative context at a dedication ceremony. But we also have to think of it as a genre with very particular prose features tied to structure and parallel prose. And parallel prose is a type of writing that involves semantic and syntactic parallelisms that's really important in Chinese poetics. And what I try to argue is that because of these genre conventions, that certain types of language is expected to be used which creates really kind of unique ideas of of time and space of kind of Buddhist, what I could call in really general terms, versions of the Buddhist cosmos, Buddhist cosmology. So one of the arguments I'm trying to make in the chapter is that, is that genre really does matter, not only because the texts in some ways themselves are set apart by their genre, but also because the genre creates types of versions of the Buddhist cosmos that we don't see except in East Asia. And I think that'll be more clear um, as I talk about it a little bit more. So one of the things I show is that there's a, a strong expectation to draw on Chinese imagery from Chinese texts. And that happens, and by this I mean Chinese texts outside of the Buddhist canon. And this happens in particular sections, especially. And, it, and what it does is it, I think it ends up happening in ways that kind of fuse and create highly original versions of, of, for example, of Buddhist heavens, notions of Buddhist kingship. So for example, we see, and I don't talk about this as much in, in the book, um, it's it, I, this is something I cut that I hope to publish, publish later, but we see, for example, lots of language that focuses on Chinese sage kings, much more than we see image related to kind of Buddhist Chakravartin um, kingship. We also, for example, see lots of imagery that's related to what some scholars translate as immortals, Chinese jian or Japanese sen, senin, what Robert Campany, I think, better translates as transcendence. And we see this integrated into the text in part because it's a genre convention to do so. And so, for example, when they describe a, a pure land that's ostensibly a Buddhist pure land, it seems to come, um, this is a, a prayer by um, Empress um, Koken or Shotoku, she reigns twice under different uh, under different names. She describes what's ostensibly a Buddhist pure land based on this sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Kegonkyo. But in it, she references all these Chinese geographic features, for example, Mount Chaoshan. And Mount Chaoshan is the tomb of the mythical Chinese yellow emperor. So suddenly we have this, this pure land that's de- described in ways that's clearly citing Buddhist canonical texts, but then also putting these references such as the Fun River and Mount Chaoshan, all these things from Chinese classics into the text itself. And so in this way, it kind of creates something that only can exist in a Chinese language context. And the reason it exists is precisely because of generic conventions. The other thing I just want to kind of note as an aside, because this is one of my pet peeves, is there's been a lot of attention in recent years in Japanese scholarship to some of these Chinese images related to things like the so-called immortals or what I prefer to call transcendence. And a lot of scholars have used this as evidence for, for Taoism in Japan. But I, I want to stress here that I don't think we need to understand these references to things like immortals and transcendence as an example of Taoism. Um, the term Taoism is used really precisely by Sinologists, and I would recommend to everyone the, the excellent recent study by Terry Kleeman. 
I don't think we should use Taoism to mean anything that's not Buddhist but Chinese. And one of the reasons that I say this is the ideas of transcendence and the imagery that we see in these texts is incredibly diffuse. It appears in Chinese poetry. It appears in, Chi- in Chinese Buddhist texts. It appears in Chinese Taoist texts. But I find it much more useful to think of them as Chinese literary and Chinese ritual tropes than to assigning them to an ism that in Japan lacks a clergy, lacks a canon, and lacks um, lacks kind of any type of institutional um, background. And so that's kind of my, my pet peeve, but I think we're better off to think about these these concepts as a broader shared literary and ritual practice that we don't necessarily need to ascribe a particular ism to understand. Sure. Great. So so moving on, in, 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 in the second part of the book, you look at the relationship between ritualized writing and certain forms of social organization in Nara period Japan. And you argue, and here I quote you again, that sutra copying was in part enabled by particular social institution, uh, social and institutional configurations, while at the same time it was generative of new ones. Um, and in chapter three, you look at a case in which individuals came together to collectively carry out sutra copying, uh, while in chapter four, you examine an institution that carried out sutra copying. I want to begin with chapter three, in which you discuss a type of fellowship called a uh, chishiki yui. This chapter is filled with very carefully researched examples that illustrate the points you're making. And here, as elsewhere in the book, you draw on examples from other parts of East Asia and the broader Buddhist world to reveal the way in which the Japanese examples you're presenting exhibit similarities with non-Japanese examples. But to begin with the basics, what sort of fellowship is the chishiki yui? And in what sort of activities do such fellowships engage? So on the most basic level, this is a form of Buddhist friendship. And the Sanskrit is this term, Kalyanamitra. And scholars have kind of called them helpers on the path. Um, but it's, it means something like, like wholesome, good, in a moral sense, virtuous friends. And what these people are supposed to do is they're supposed to help their friends live in accord with Buddhist ideals. Some scholars interpret this as referring exclusively to monks, but it's decidedly not the case, at least in Japan and really throughout the Buddhist world. world it seems like these are often um, communities that include large numbers of, of, of lay people who are supposed to kind of help, them, help, help each other on the Buddhist path. More specifically, these groups tend to engage in Japan in patronage activities, such as copying sutras, commissioning em- images, constructing temples, things of that nature. But we also have evidence that some of these groups shared worship of a common deity. So there's like a cultic connection, like they might all be connected to Maitreya worship. Um, In other examples, we have cases where they may have upheld certain numbers of um, precepts, such as the Bodhisattva precepts, various lay precepts, and things of that nature. So they're communities of people that join together to help one another in practice. Okay. One of the points you make in this chapter is that 8th century fellowships were able to form in part due to new forms of administrative organization, particularly the organization of parts of Japan into state-recognized villages and districts. This, in turn, relates to another point you make, namely that the fellowships you're examining don't fit neatly into the categories that are usually used to understand not a period Buddhism, and this is a point you've already touched upon. So these categories are usually state Buddhism or Buddhism by and for the state, clan Buddhism or temples and organizations based on a particular clan with a great deal of focus on prayers for clan ancestors, and then folk or popular Buddhism, um, which is often Buddhist activity that doesn't fit into the other two categories. 
And you note that some previous scholars have understood fellowships to essentially be a form of popular Buddhism. But here you argue that fellowships, in fact, blur these distinctions, forcing us to rethink assumed divisions between politics, society and individual religious aspirations. So how does this how does this work? Yeah. And so in one of the criticisms that Japanese scholars have waged against the state Buddhism model is they've tried to focus on something that they call folk Buddhism or popular Buddhism. And for them, then, all of the different types of Buddhism kind of very neatly map onto social class. And I want to kind of, I thought this example of these fellowship groups showed how that really doesn't work well. And one of the notions I used in this chapter that was really helpful to me is is a political scientist, Benjamin Reed, his notion of straddlers. And, And he defines, I have this written down here, he defines this as groups that have extensive presence at the grassroots and engage widespread participation, yet are institutionally linked to the state rather than independent of it. One of the things I found is that a lot of these groups are in certain ways grassroots organizations. They're locally organized by community members themselves, um, sometimes with, with relatively obscure monks helping with the organization. But at the same time, we often see mid to low level government officials playing a role in the groups, that the groups often were organized along lines that were recently drawn for tax, tax collection purposes, lines like villages and districts, which are kind of administrative units initiated by the state. And so I didn't think we can only understand these groups as as folk or popular, that these groups in some ways were enabled in part by state institutions, while at the same time engaging in this kind of widespread grassroots participation. So that's one of the arguments I want to make about these groups. Then also, how do we think about them, right? So on the one hand, on a social level, they blur these lines between state and folk very clearly. And on the other, when we start to look at their religious character, that people are upholding precepts, that people are worshiping particular deities, that even though they have connections to state institutions, we can't reduce them to a state project, right? We can't just see them as as coercive collaborations with the state that we're trying in some ways to kind of enhance the state ideology in the provinces. Rather, we can see how these groups, I think, could have been connected to particular ethical and religious ideas about upholding precepts and worshiping deities. And that if we only use categories like state and folk and these binaries, we really miss a lot about what's going on in these groups. So that was one of the things I was trying to do in shifting from the previous chapters talking about ritual to shift to consider about social organizations and how these organizations really challenge a lot of our basic understandings of, of Nara period, but then also for scholars of religion more generally, how do we think about social organizations in ways that aren't just based on elite, non-elite binaries? And also that I think take the religious and ethical attitudes of these communities seriously. So, so so there in chapter three, you're talking about suture copying by fellowships. And now turning to chapter four, here you talk about suture copying carried out by institutions. And in and here in this chapter, you have an absolutely fascinating seven-page description of how sutras were copied in a scriptorium, uh, guiding us through one particular project from the year 754. You take us from you take uh, us, the readers, from the initial order for the suture to be copied all the way through to the final delivery of the copied sutras to various temples, a process that in this case took about two weeks from order to delivery. And this description will really be a true delight, and I'm not simply being polite here, for, for anyone interested in the material facet of the process and in material culture more generally, as you describe the paper and types of brushes used, how materials were distributed and returned, and so on. But, uh, but this description also reminds the reader that behind the reproduction of a sutra is a complicated network of institutions and relationships as you write, sutras did not copy themselves. So 
the description is really too rich and detailed to cover in this interview, but let me just note that like the fellowships you discuss in chapter three, there was a continental precedent in here, and you show how the organizational model for the copying of sutras in large numbers was most likely borrowed from the continent, uh, particularly from Korea. Now, in this chapter, you also argue that the most important institutions for copying sutras during the Nara period were not state institutions, which I think is what most people would assume, but rather scriptoria that were part of aristocratic households. And here, when you talk about households, you're not talking about a sort of three generations under one roof sort of thing, but fairly large organizations in their own right. So I want to ask how household script uh, or what exactly household scriptoria were, how they emerged, and what their relationship with uh, what we with the state and with state scriptoria was. Yeah, so there's there's a lot there, and let me try to address all of it. First, let me just um, say a few words of, of thank you. So that that seven page description that you um, very kindly um, commented upon. I have to say that wasn't in the original manuscript at all. I didn't have it. And I'm really indebted to two people. One is one of my readers who I later learned was, was David Lurie, which said like, you know, we read this whole book and nobody ever tells us like how a sutra was copied. Like you need to add a description. And that was really, really good advice. Um, so I followed it. The other is I want to just mention one of my teachers in Japan, Sakahara Toho, who I'm incredibly indebted to in lots of ways. But a lot of that seven page description is, is really borrowing from his, his foundational scholarship. Um, so I'm drawing really heavily on that. And his version, I can send readers, uh, uh, listeners a uh, link if they want, but his, his, his version, one of the versions I, I drew heavily upon actually has pictures that are really great um, and go with the whole, the whole description. So I just wanted to, to thank those people for helping me because that, that section really wouldn't have existed if I was just writing this book by myself. Um, so a few things that I'm trying to do in this chapter. One is I wanted to highlight these household institutions um, that you noted, and that was, I think, the main part of your question. Households, I don't think, have gotten their fair share in Japanese Buddhism because of these categories of of state and popular. Um, But in a household is, again, something that kind of blurs some of these lines. The largest one, such as one by this figure I focus on a lot in the chapter, Prince Nagaya, has like a huge number of offices ranging from saddle makers to doctors. And they're, they're large compounds with multiple buildings, ponds, gardens, things like this. And they include state sanctioned employees that work for them. But when we look at the sutras that they copied, they're often for very personal reasons related to memorial of family members and things of that nature. So these households help blur the line. And I also wanted to kind of just call attention to these household scriptorias more generally. I think two other things that I was trying to do in this chapter, in addition to kind of highlighting these these household scriptoria and also providing a a really detailed um, history of a single scriptorium, is I, I think I wanted to make at least two points. One is that in the in the in chapter three, I want to say that these fellowships that people typically classify as popular or folk are much more complicated than that, and, are, and straddle categories are these straddlers. And in chapter four, I want to focus a lot on one scriptorium that becomes connected to Todaiji, which is usually viewed as a state institution. It's viewed as a representative of, of state sutra copying in part because it created um, imperially sanctioned canons. And what I wanted to say is, well, wait, there's actually more to these scriptoria than just state. So just like we can't call the fellowship groups popular, we also can't only call these state scriptoria, um, especially one single state scriptorium as well as others, only state. That if we look at the types of texts being copied, they have a whole variety of purposes. If we look at what the patrons were praying for, again, we see um, lots of very personal 
prayers in addition to ones that might be connected to a state project. And then finally, I try to show how networks are really important connected to the scriptoria, that these household scriptoria that I just described in some ways would rely on the official state scriptorium for manuscripts to get the source text from which to copy, something I refer to as exemplars in the book. They would sometimes rely on laborers from the scriptorium, that we also have this phenomenon of, of private copying, that we have a lot of documents related to what they call as private copying um, using the character watakushi or shishakyo um, for where it seems that people that had personal connections in some ways to individuals at the scriptorium could often use its resources for their own sutra copying projects and that it was much more of a porous institution than again these binaries of state and folk um, let us see so that's one of the arguments i want to make and that's a bit more particular to the the japan case although i think there are things that are useful about how we think about institutions and how we think about institutions that might blur lines between um, elite and non-elite the other thing i wanted to talk about in that chapter which at least as far as i know is a point that i don't think scholars in religious studies have, have made that much is the connection between bureaucracy and ritual. Um, we don't usually put bureaucracy and ritual in the same sentence, but one of the arguments I wanted to make is that like a large-scale so-called rationalized bureaucracy can actually enable the tremendous can enable tremendous capabilities, ritual capabilities. So text could be copied on unprecedented level because of the bureaucratic scale of these institutions. And in this way, I wanted to argue that people that study religion need to pay attention to bureaucracy too, because bureaucracy can enable ritual productivity on a level that is, that's not possible without, without large scale division of labors, administrative class and things of that nature. Great. Now in the fifth chapter, you focus on a single scribe within an official scriptorium. His name was Karakuni no Muraji Hitonari, and by focusing on him, you provide the reader with a different perspective on the bureaucratic institutions that you discuss earlier in the book, primarily in chapter four. So in chapter four, we just see this big institution, and whereas in chapter five, we see the career of this single individual. So the career of this individual is really fascinating, and again, due to the richness of your, of your book and your description, we'll only skim the surface. With that said, let me ask you this. You argue that rather than simply being a job that produced a paycheck, the position of sutra copier allowed Hitonari and others in his position to cultivate their religious, calligraphic, and literary sensibilities and skills. How so? Yeah, so in this part of the book, kind of part three of the book, I try to switch, as you note, from these studies of large-scale social institutions to to these micro-histories, two micro-histories in the final two chapters. And for, I do want to say... I mean, in contrast to what you just described, I don't want to overemphasize my point. I think for some sutra copyists and some proofreaders, it was decidedly just a paycheck. And we have some good documents about them grumbling about, you know, the food not being good enough. And I don't want to say that, you know, life was always rosy and, and filled with Buddhist practice. For certain individuals, it, it might have just been a paycheck. But we also know that like a lot of other workers, including this figure, Hitonari, for example, aspired to become monks. And in fact, Hitonari does become a monk, which is one of the reasons I got interested in him. And so one of the things I wanted to say is like, what's the connection then be between becoming a monk and, and the various jobs he had at the scriptorium, which includes scribe, proofreader, administrative roles. And one of the things I noticed is that there's like a lot of similarities to the things he did would do as a monk and things he would do as a scribe. So monks, we know actually from other sources were valued for their liturgical capabilities, their ability to chant texts. We know that he learned how to chant texts while he was at the scriptorium. 
We know that monks would have been valued for calligraphic and literary sensibilities. These are, again, things he could have developed at the scriptorium. We actually see examples of him writing poetry. Um, and probably most importantly, we know that monks would be valued for upholding purity, which we've already seen is something that's closely connected to, um, to sutra copying more generally. And so what I wanted to show then is that like all of these things that he's doing were things that actually would enable him to embark in other types of career paths. And for him, it was a monk. For other scribes, we see them kind of climbing up different administrative ladders and using the skills that they gained at the scriptorium. One of the kind of broader methodological things I wanted to do in this chapter, too, is take some of these figures that are at the bottom of a Japanese bureaucracy, which are usually often viewed as being kind of tragic figures with, with no chance to advance. They don't get good paychecks. Probably their life expectancies aren't, aren't that great. All of these things. And say, like, well, from their perspective, you know, can we give them a little bit of agency? Can we see what these practices might have meant for them? And Again, kind of this notion of thinking about bodily practices and ethical cultivation seemed really helpful, that for these figures, it enabled them to embark on particular paths that they might not have otherwise been able to embark on through both the exposure to texts, large libraries, but also then through particular bodily practices relating to upholding purity. So one of the things I really want to do in this chapter is, is to think about the ritual from the perspective of the most low-level ritual actors involved, the people that I think we often ignored, you know, the people that are producing the texts, people that are often absent from our narrative of Japanese history, and see how they might um, understand their practice. And then on a more kind of theoretical level, I mean, drawing on, on people like, like Foucault and Saba Mahmoud and Talal Assad, to think about discipline in kind of two senses, right? That in some ways they're disciplined from above, from the institutional settings that they're in, but then also that through regimes, right, through regimens, they are able to, to become self-disciplined, to become the types of people that are valued in this, in this society. And those are kind of the, the big picture things I was trying to do in this chapter. And I did it through a lot of kind of nitty-gritty details of, of pouring through um, documents related to this figure. Yeah, and readers will have to um, get the book themselves to, um, to appreciate all that rich detail. Um, so... so uh, in the interest of time, I want to move on to the the final chapter, chapter six, and in which you turn to a transcription project carried out in mid seven forty eight. This project entailed a copying of three Buddhist scriptures and was commissioned by the Queen Consort Komyoshi on behalf of her daughter, Princess Abe. Now, you use this case study to make a number of points, but chief among them is that in the case at hand, Buddhist ritual here being ritualized writing. Uh, was not used simply as a means of displaying one's political authority and not simply as a means of representing some deeper meaning. So if not that, how was ritualized writing being used in this case, um, if not as a mean of, means of asserting political power and legitimacy? Let me just say a little tiny bit about the texts and, and the methods. I think that'll make the point about um, ritualized writing more mm-hmm. clear. So these were texts that are typically viewed as two of the texts are typically viewed as being very closely related to protection. And one of the texts is a, is a divination work. And through the showstring documents, I think this is one of the really unique things one could do. I could pinpoint the exact days in which these texts were ordered to be copied and then contextualize that within the broader kind of political climate of the time. That's a much broader argument, but in short, it was a very fraught time for a particular figure who these texts were copied on behalf of. So on the one hand, the surface level explanation is these texts were copied on behalf of her to protect this princess that was going to become the empress. 
But when we dig deeper and look into kind of the broader cosmological view of the text and the context in which they're copied, we see that the same figures that promise protection, both in the text and then in the broader kind of art historical context of this, of this age, are tech figures like the aforementioned four heavenly kings. These are figures who, as I noted before, can both protect and punish. And one of the things I wanted to say is that the way that most scholars have treated Buddhism of the elites, particularly Buddhism of the, of, the, of the royal family, is that they use Buddhism as a way to display their authority, right? They say, hey, aren't I great? I can do all of these wonderful Buddhist things. Look at me. And what I wanted to argue is that, sure, that's definitely going on. I don't want to deny that Buddhism is functioning as kind of a theater state, as some scholars have, have called it. Rather, what I wanted to say is that I think the state is the, the figure, and I don't, I don't want to talk about the state in abstract sense, the particular individuals at the top of the state, namely the, the princess, the queen consort, the emperor, were themselves fearful of these threats. That The texts themselves say, if you are not a good Buddhist, you will lose your realm. You, bandits will come in. Um, enemies will come in. And so the, the state in some ways then itself, or the individuals at the top of the state, are themselves controlled by these Buddhist ideas, right? They need to do these good things or they will lose all of the power that they have. And so I end the chapter by saying it's unclear here then if the state is controlling Buddhism or Buddhism the state. And so one of the arguments I want to make here is that kind of in the opposite, and this, I'm doing similar things I think in chapters three and four and five and six, we typically look at scribes and figures of that nature as kind of having no agency. And I want to kind of give them a little bit more agency. We typically, I often, particularly in kind of really crude Marxist understandings, we look at the elites as having almost too much agency, right? They can just display and control the message however they want. What I want to argue here is that these people too are part of a broader worldview in which the failure to be a moral upright Buddhist risks punishment. And so I want to argue then that, that political elites are also confined and disciplined in ways that are that are very similar, I think, to, to ways that, that other figures, um, non-elites, are also constrained, confined, and disciplined. And so that was kind of the broader argument I was trying to make, is that ritual isn't only about display, even for, even for elites, but it's also about, uh, about control and constraint, um, even, even for members of the court. Yeah, and that point, that you make that point very well in this chapter, it comes across very clearly. Uh, well, we've really taken a lot of your time, but as a final question, I wanted to ask what you're working on currently, uh, now that this uh, project is is over. Yes, I'm working on this project on provincial preaching. And there's some things, continuities with the first book. One is that I got really interested in manuscript cultures and manuscript studies in the first book. And the second book project on provincial preaching is focused on a, on a manuscript, a, a single manuscript written on the back of another text that records notes that a provincial preacher used to prepare for sermons and liturgies out in the provinces. And so I'm paying attention to kind of manuscript cultures and ritual cultures in the extent, to the extent that, you know, he's performing liturgies and things of that nature. I'm also, again, like the first book, interested in margins and their connections to centers and non-elite practitioners and their kind of connections also to elites. Some things that I'm doing different in this book is one, I'm adding a whole new type of sources. I'm overcoming my fears. I'm engaging with the archaeological data to learn a lot more of what did Buddhism look like in the provinces through what we can see from the material culture um, archaeologically. I'm moving a little bit into a new century. I'm working also a lot on early Heian materials, which is when this manuscript comes from. And then finally, kind of a broader, more theoretical question that I'm asking is how are religious ideas communicated, particularly to 
to communities that might not be that familiar with these ideas. And here I try to pay a lot of attention to both infrastructure. So how do things like roads and villages enable religious ideas to spread? But then also the homiletic strategies of the preachers. So I'm very interested in ideas of rhetoric and homiletics um, in thinking about this project. But it's still very early on in the project, and I'm not sure exactly which direction yeah. it will lead me. Well, that fa- sounds fascinating. Um, I'll look forward to inviting you again onto the show once that uh, book comes out in, uh, what, next January or something? No, it's many, many, many years down the road. All right. Well, thank, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to uh, speak with me today and also to uh, thank our listeners. And um, with that, that's uh, the end for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next time. <laughs>